All right, we're um, looking at a very, very exciting passage today. We're in Acts chapter 9, and uh, maybe if you've been reading through the book of Acts at this point, there's a lot of drama that's taking place. I'll refresh your memory. Acts chapter 1, there was that very famous verse that said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. The church gets so excited. Uh, Chapter 2, we see the church with great generosity. They start selling their properties and possessions, and they start giving things away, and um, you think everything's going great. Um, Then around chapter 8, there's a lot of persecution that hits the church. Uh, And then chapter 9, we see a, a person named Saul who gets converted, and Saul is turned into Paul and becomes a great witness and a missionary to indeed take the gospel to those very places which God had promised in Acts chapter 1. But the church almost gets confused when there's struggle that takes place or there's opposition or persecution. And so therefore we're going to look today at basically two things. It's called walking in the fear of the Lord and walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So that's our, that's our title today. We're going to learn how to walk today, basically. All right, so let me read our passage. It's found in Matt, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 9, verses 23 to 43. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, and the him is Paul. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he, Paul, had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, And they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing 
tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turned to the body. He said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when he saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let's pray. God, thanks for this text. Thanks for this story. Thank you that uh, Luke, the same gospel writer Luke, recorded these acts of the apostles, the miraculous work that you began to do in those people. God, thank you that your power is real. Thank you that you're alive today, still able by your miraculous power to do the same and perhaps even greater works than these. God, thank you so much. Teach us, show us what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord and to walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit as this early church was learning to do. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Before getting started with the new way to walk here of walking in the fear of the Lord and walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, we have to acknowledge the, uh, the detrimental uh, awareness of um, the feeling fatalism that must have enveloped that entire church. I want you to think about the violence going on in that early church. Again, go read about it, um, Acts chapters 7, 8, and 9. Uh, Christians are being dragged off to either be killed or imprisoned. Priests are even giving them letters uh, sanctioning such events. All of that is going on, and so there had to have been a feeling of fatalism. And this is where it applies to you and to me. This is where in our lives, I think, it's real easy as a Christian to think, Uh, and live under a fatalistic approach regarding life, such as, it's all bad. The system is all rigged. How could life get any worse? It feels like everybody's against me. It feels like the system's against me. Nothing's going to change forever and ever. Amen. I'm doomed. It's just stuck that way. I'm stuck in this marriage. I'm stuck in this relationship. I'm stuck in this job. I'm stuck in this body that I don't like. I'm stuck in this personality of who I find myself to be. Um, you may or may not deal with that, but guess what? You're, if you don't, your friends are dealing with that kind of temptation towards a fatalistic approach. An example of that fatalistic approach or mentality is this persecution hits the church. Literally, it comes out of nowhere. As I mentioned, Acts chapter 1 and 2, they're literally in each other's homes, having a good time, breaking bread together, having communion meal together, having devotional time together, serving each other. And you could almost imagine someone, if they could have looked into the future around Acts chapter 8 and 9, which they couldn't, nor can we, they would have said, you didn't tell us suffering was coming. You didn't tell us that persecution was in the story. When I signed up to follow Jesus, I felt like everything would be made great and like right now. I love the Bible, this is an aside, but I love the Bible's honesty regarding suffering. And the Bible's honesty and the gospel's honesty about how to deal with fatalistic type thinking, negativity. 
Uh, Acts chapter 8, I'll read verses uh, 1 through 3. And on that great day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. But Saul laid waste the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. No legal protection. No legal protection for you and me if we were there. If the table church it had existed, it would have been around right there. No, uh, nothing to do when the Romans, like Pilate, are against us. Nothing to do when the Jewish council, like the Sanhedrin, is coming after you and me. The priests, as I said earlier, were against them. Letters are being written sanctioning all of this chaos. Nothing can change this. Nothing can turn this around. The powers of evil are just way too great. And then there's a sudden reversal. And this is what always happens, not only in church history, this is what always happens with the gospel of grace. There's always a sudden reversal especially when things look like they couldn't get any worse, especially when things look like in your life, your life is up against the ropes, who understands, everything's gotten out of control, and God mysteriously, even surprisingly, shows up. Uh, I'd love to tell you more, maybe offline, um, at some point, how that happened to me yesterday. There's something very beautiful that took place um, in, in a counseling appointment that I was a part of and in that God just, I believe, miraculously just showed up and offered uh, some encouragement and some hope uh, right in the midst of a painful situation. Um, so, so here's the thing. Battling um, that fatalistic mentality is the encouraging thing about Christianity. And that is that God is not dead. Jesus is not distant. God still speaks. God is still at work. God has the power to come in in the middle of whatever you're going through and bring change and deliver you or the situation. Uh, this week I was looking at one of, the, one of the Proverbs and it says that the Lord holds the king's heart in his hand and he turns it wherever he wishes our God is sovereign. That's a big word, but essentially means God is in control. And this is usually where intellects say things like, well, yeah, if you are, then why don't you care about suffering? And yeah, and if you are, why don't you do something about my situation? And God knows more than we do. God is able to allow all of that funk and chaos, as he's doing right here in the early church, recorded for us in Acts chapter 9, to eventually allow the persecution and the scattering of the church to indeed take the gospel to those very places. Amidst all the persecution happening, he's building his church. Look at verse 23 and as well as verse 29. Uh, mentions here that they were plotting to kill this Saul. So the hunter is becoming the hunted. The persecutor is becoming the persecuted. Think about the strategy that God is using here. He knows the intellect. He knows the giftings. He knows the passion. He knows the energy. All of those things which he had equipped Paul with. The very person who is the antagonist is about to become the protagonist in this story. 
Verse 25 here says that Paul escapes in a basket through the wall. (laughs) That's amazing. That's, That's creativity at work here. That's God's plan through human beings beginning to help him escape all of those people that are trying to kill him. Verse 30, he finally escapes on a ship going to Tarsus. Like, like Paul, we need you to get out of here. Like, like, just go that way. There's way too much chaos and persecution that we're experiencing, maybe because of you. So we need you to go that way. The climax of the incredible turnaround, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time focusing this morning, is in verse 31. The climax is... Uh, Written here in verse 31, it says, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was destroyed. Oh, nope, it didn't say it was destroyed. Hope you were reading and following on there. It said it was built up. The church was being built up. And it didn't just mean numbers of people and even new locations of church plants starting and happening, but their faith was being built up. Their love and knowledge of this King and risen Lord Jesus is being built up. That's encouragement for you and for me. To know that whatever it is that I will face this very week, the challenges that I will go through, reminds me that I need King Jesus. I need this person in my life who's going to turn persecution, violence, conspiracy, suspicion, and the scattering, he's going to turn it around for his good. I need that. So the two things, as I said at the very top, that we want to focus on is walking. Walking in the fear of the Lord that this verse 31 talks about. Maybe you grew up in church and to fear the Lord meant keep your mouth shut. Don't ask any questions. Or maybe you grew up in a household where the parents said, we're going to put the fear of God in them. We're going to clamp down and we're going to control and... and, um, The word fear here means awe. And not like, awe, how cute God is. But it's it's where we get the word awesome from. Filled with awe. Filled with, maybe like in worship, when you're filled with awe, you begin to focus on who God really is. Your hands maybe get raised. You perhaps, maybe you fall down and surrender is what this word awe means. Fear of the Lord basically means that God is free. God is free to break into human history any way, anyhow, wherever and whenever God chooses so. That's the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord also means, or you may remember when the disciples are uh, are in the boat with Jesus. Remember that story? They're in the boat with Jesus and Jesus is sleeping and there's a storm raging around them. And if you or I would have been there, we we would have naturally felt, wake up, Jesus, do something. Please do something. And so the fear of the Lord is what those disciples experienced when Jesus did wake up and spoke to the storm. Imagine it. Go back and read it, but put yourself in the story. Jesus spoke to the storm and told the storm to be quiet and to settle down and to be still, and the storm obeyed his voice. That's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is when Peter grabbed his sword just 
before Jesus is arrested and betrayed, and, and he, he, he cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers there. The fear of the Lord would have gripped Peter when Jesus real quickly healed that soldier's ear like that fast. That's fear. That's awe. That's, oh, wow. We're in someone else's presence that's not weird, but just unlike anyone else. This is just, it's awe. Has this ever hit you? Has this ever hit you about God and about Jesus? This, this awestruck. Maybe you've been in worship, either at church or in your closet somewhere in the privacy of your own space, and you were just overcome with either a new vision or a new glimpse or a new understanding of who this God really is. Not just the factual doctrinal points about who God is, but the very person of who God is. I can't convince you of it. You can't give it to me. I can't give it to you. But it's God revealing himself in that way. Uh, Fearing the Lord means, and my dad used to say this, you don't dally with him. You don't dally with him. You don't play around with who God is. When we say fear of the Lord and we say that God is awesome and we're to have awe of him, it means you're not to mock God. Um, my dad would also explain uh, the third commandment to me, Exodus chapter 20, where he says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. That's what it means to fear the Lord. We're not just flippantly throwing God's name out there in some way that we really haven't thought about because his name deserves highest praise and honor and glory. Back to Peter. Peter shows us something about what it means to fear the Lord. It's humility. Humility. He says, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Do you understand how mighty God's hand really is? Not to harm you, not to crush you, but to fight for you. Fear the Lord. Live in awe of the Lord. That's what this early church was doing. That's how it multiplied. That's what God was doing in their midst, in the middle of the persecution, is they were living, they were walking, they were learning more about who this Jesus was. And they were living in fear of the Lord, in awe of him. One last example of fearing the Lord that I'll mention is in Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet is writing, and I'll quote him here in chapter 6. He says, in the year King Uzziah died, I... Isaiah referring to himself, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the entire temple. Above him there were seraphim, each had six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they cried out and called to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe to me. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. 
and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. The going of the church, the going of us as ministers. By the way, that's been the title of our sermon series. Every Christian is a minister. That's what that's about right there. Thank you, Isaiah, for showing us what that's about. Isaiah experienced the fear of the Lord. Not running from this God, but being sent out by this God. I've experienced this God. I know that he's mighty. I know that he's holy. And I know that I'm not. I know that I'm not mighty. I know that I'm not righteous and holy. But this God who is loves me and knows me. And I'm living in awe of him and learning to live in awe of him. Do you know those people that you're around that just seriously take themselves way too seriously? Been around, been around that before. Maybe we've taken ourselves too seriously. I'm sure we all have. Being a Christian helps you and I in this early church not take yourself so seriously anymore. Take God all the more seriously. Take his purpose in this world even more seriously. Take his holiness more seriously than ever before. But a growing and growing awareness of yourself to not take yourself so seriously. Second thing is the walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We've said this before, but the Christian life is a lot like a storm. It rages. It rages. From without and from within, it rages. Peter mentions sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Thank you, Peter, for being honest. Wages war against you and I all week. Yet the comfort of the Holy Spirit is that holy God has taken up residency inside of you through the presence of the Holy Spirit to comfort you, to comfort you. So living in the eye of the storm, right? The meteorologist would teach us that it's in the eye of the storm, that the winds can be 150 miles per hour all around in the hurricane, but it's in that eye of the storm. That basically, if you were to get eight, you know, to be able to get into the eye of that storm, the skies, you could see them, they would be blue. They would be clear. There would be literally no precipitation in the middle of the eye of the storm. And that's the Christian's heart cry. That's our soul is, Lord Jesus, calm me as I'm in the midst of this storm at work. As I'm in the midst of this relationship, as I'm in the midst of persecution as a Christian, as I'm being misunderstood as a Christian. Help me feel and know your comfort, Holy Spirit, that you bring me. Verse 31 again, the church walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I love the old hymn written in 1763, Rock of Ages. Love it. Love it. Gives great insight to what this comfort of the Holy Spirit means. Gives great insight to what it means to live in the eye of the storm. I love it. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. What a great song. What a battle cry for the heart and even my own personal story. Lord, Lord, don't let me hide in my trophies, please. Don't let me hide in what I wish I had accomplished. Don't let me hide in my networking and all of these things. Let me hide, meaning let me place my identity in. Let me put my trust in you and all that you've accomplished. 
Jesus is that rock. Jesus is that rock. Let me hide myself in you, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, bring your comfort to me. So walking, this is in closing here. And out of deep encouragement here, I I, I give this to you as a reminder. Because of the comfort of the Holy Spirit, rest. Rest in God's sovereignty. Rest right now today knowing that God is in control. Not a president somewhere. Not some economy that's doing this or that. Not any person who's bullying you right now. Not any person that's ever abused you. Not any person that's ever forgotten about you. God is in control. Rest in God's love today. Rest in it. Hunger for it. Thirst for it. Ask God to enable you and me to love him more. And rest in God's confidence. Not in ourselves. Rest in God's confidence. And lastly, live in expectation that God is full of surprises, able to break in and change your story, your history, change cultures, change the king's heart, which is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, that God is alive. God is at work. And in the midst of an early church going through tons of persecution, where it looked like the bad guys were going to win, and they were going to snuff out not only the church, but this random fairy tale that the church had made up, God had seen otherwise. God has a grand story that you're a part of and that I'm a part of. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your, for your awesome power. Teach us, show us what it means to, to walk in fear of you. And Holy Spirit, thank you for your comforting presence among us and in us. Thank you that you don't abandon us. You don't leave us as orphans, Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that we all are ministers and we need your empowerment. We need you. We thank you for your victory of rising from the dead and we thank you for the victory of the Holy Spirit in us. And so, Lord, we we pray. We pray for ourselves and in our places of work. Help us be light. Help us be truth. Help us be real and honest people in need of Christ. Help us be people helping to change our culture and change San Francisco. And God, all of this is impossible unless you empower us. And so we know that nothing is impossible for you. Nothing is impossible for you. So God, be at work. Be at work in us and through us. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.